Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, May 1st, 2016. The share ID for Friday, April 29th, is 8703. That's 8703. This morning, A Vision for You presents the Steps to Emotional Recovery. The Big Book teaches on page 143, that to get over drinking will require a transformation of thought and attitude. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. The real advantage of these steps is that they are a specific, proven method for producing a transformation, a change in the way we think, a change in the way we feel, and a change in the way we behave. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of our lives, are cast to one side, and a completely new set of conceptions, ideas, emotions, and attitudes begin to dominate us. Joining us to speak on the steps to emotional recovery is Chrissy M., a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. Chrissy is devoted to our 12-step way of life, and she's here to share her experience, strength, and hope today. Welcome, Chrissy. Thank you, Leah. Thank you so much. I am really honored to do service today, and I just wanted to start by saying, well, first of all, can you hear me well? I can. Okay. I am just like like everyone else. I remember coming into the program and listening to people and thinking, "Oh my god, they're so wise and how do they know all this?" And I'm just I'm just like anyone else. Anyone who got up in the morning, I haven't come up with any of this information on my own. It's a culmination of our collective legacy of recovery beginning from Bill and Bob and passed down and expanded on and put into practice in my own life, so I have my own spin on things like we all would. So more recently in, in my recovery, I just to give you a quick background, I, I started in 12 Steps recovery when I was very young, when I was 21 years old, and I'll be 47 in June. And for me, at working, learning about the steps and growing up in 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 AA as as I did was such a blessing, such a blessing. And for me, I I have been able to look back on my experience. And now from this perspective, a year and eight months into OA recovery, I've been able to see sort of what Bill W. was talking about in an article that he wrote in 1958 called The Next Frontier Emotional Sobriety. It's the emotional sobriety piece that I didn't really fully understand until I went down all sorts of different paths in my recovery to try to maintain emotional balance in ways outside of myself. So let me just begin by by reading what I wrote, um, I just wanted to write what what is the recovery process. Because just simply, in my experience, I've obviously heard so many recovery stories in the time 
that I've been in in the rooms and all of the different rooms I've been in. So this is kind of how I summed it up. Being restored to sanity is seeing the true from the false before we believed our own lies. Just this one time, and then I'll give it up. Whatever your drug of choice, whatever it is you're giving up. After the holidays, after vacation, I don't need to prepare my food. There will probably be something there I can eat. Lies, lies, lies. I know I bought them all because I was deeply ill. I was dependent on compulsive reading to live. I believed that food would protect me, would keep me in emotional balance. That's insane. I trusted a brownie to make me feel okay, to make me feel emotionally balanced. But I looked at people in recovery recovery like they were nuts if they told me the 12 steps in God would take care of me. Until I was desperate to change, I couldn't live with compulsive overeating and anorexia, and I couldn't live without it. At that moment, they told me I was at the jumping off place. That's actually a good place to be. For me, it meant believing I was out of good ideas. And as they say in 12-step programs, my best thinking had gotten me into that sad state. I, it, it was the, that then that I had the chink in my armor that the light of reason could come in. And it's described in the 12 and 12. The light of reason could come in and I put down the addiction and I let my nutritionist, which um, was this this a year and eight months ago, really, my way of surrendering was to listen to a nutritionist and to tell me what to do, what to eat. I surrendered. What happened then? I had to replace the comfort I got from food with with what? With something. Recovered people know, and they were all too happy to tell me. In in abstinence in the early days, it's just about staying away from the triggers, people, places, and things that make me vulnerable to picking up, especially as I begin to work the steps and work on a relationship to a higher power. Like all new friendships, I had to test it out. The sponsor said, write the list. I wrote the list. The sponsor said, call me at 8 a.m. I called at 8 a.m. This was the way I turned my will and my life over. They say steps one, two, and three are I can't, he can, and I'm going to let him. And I started to change. I became obedient, something as an active addict I was in short supply of. As an active food addict, I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it. That's the first thing that had to change in recovery. Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness are the essentials of recovery. Um, In the big book, in the appendix too, that's what it says, that they're essentials. And they, they also say that they're indispensable, it says in the book, which means you must have them to recover. So every every one of us has become recovered if if we are willing to have those the honesty, the open-mindedness, and willingness. We've all traveled this exact path. We've all come to that jumping-off place. This is every recovered addict story, more or less. There's no easier, softer way. 
And when the pain of addiction becomes too great, then we are granted what I think is the grace of God, that willingness. It's that willingness, the gift of desperation, they call it. Many of us turn our backs on the gift. We refuse to let go of the safety of the life we, we know to embark on a new one. There's so much fear. It's the, it's the drop the rock story that has become legend in AA. If you don't know, if you don't know it, I'll sum it up by saying, once an addict realizes the weight of active addiction is killing them and they drop the proverbial rock, they can swim to the boat to safety. Dropping the rock, if it's the only sense of safety you've ever known, is very scary. But once it's dropped, living becomes possible and even pleasant. Good feelings start to come in where guilt, remorse, and shame were our constant companions. This is recovery. God, or your original self, the you before you were before pain forced you to seek comfort and food, that, that person, that, that self, that essence of you, is what becomes restored through forgiving, resentment, making amends, and identifying the things in you which are still weighing you down and making life a struggle, albeit less of a struggle because you're no longer in the food, the addiction is a beast, a boulder. And once that's gone, we can feel emotionally sober or balanced until we don't. (laughs) Then how do we regain our center? Well, that's what I wanted to talk about. Each time we let go of an old way of thinking or doing things, we become freer. But again, we must be honest, open-minded, and willing. And by now, the book tells us we are convinced that God, with a higher power, can help us with all our other problems as well, now that our, our eating problem is, has been lifted. So nowadays, when I feel like I'm drowning, I examine myself for the rock I need to release. Do I need to confess something, set a boundary, make a change? take on another sponsee. You start to know, you grow and you learn what it means to be emotionally sober. And you start to like it and need it and and even expect it. Being emotionally sober means having prayer time, rest, service. It means having exercise and eating right. It means keeping in balance. But what happens is Something will inevitably come and change my routine. Something new will be added to my life. And I'll have to take the steps back to be brought into emotional sobriety and back to my emotional recovery. It never fails. As they say, it works if you work it. So work it. You're worth it. And that, to me, is a culmination of the process that I've gone through many, many times with, unfortunately or fortunately, many, many addictions over the course of the 24-plus years I've been um, coming to 12-step programs. So I, I just wanted to read, because this is, this is a, um, a, new, a new concept for me um, to really focus on, and the emotional recovery and emotional sobriety. Um, Recover, emotional recovery, I'm thinking of the steps to, 
is how you get back into balance to achieve the emotional sobriety that we enjoy when we're in balance. So this article is not something that I was aware of until very recently, so I wanted to share it with you all. For those of you who have been around a while and maybe haven't heard it, it it's a great find. It's AA approved. It's a great, great find, which is the little um, publication put out by um, AA with articles from different AA members from, from all over. Um, and this one is, this article is written by Bill W. I think that many oldsters, I love that, oldsters, who have put, put our AA booze cure to severe but successful tests still find they often lack emotional sobriety. Perhaps they will be the spearhead for the next major development in AA, the development of much more real maturity and balance, which is to say humility, in our relations with ourselves, with our fellows, and with God. Those adolescent urges that so many of us have for top approval, perfect security, perfect romance, urges quite appropriate to age 17, prove to be an impossible way of life when we are at age 47 or 57. I love that he says 47 because that's real, right where I am. Since AA began, I've taken immense wallops in all these areas because of my failure to grow up emotionally and spiritually. My God, how painful it is to keep demanding the impossible and how very painful to discover finally that all along we have had the cart before the horse. And I recommend that when you have a chance that you all look look up the whole principle of having the cart before the horse in um, the fourth step in the 12 and 12. Then comes the final agony of seeing how awfully wrong we have been, but still finding ourselves unable to get off the emotional merry-go-round. How to translate a right mental conviction into a right emotional result. And so it's easy, happy, and good. So, and so into easy, happy, and good living. Well, that's not only the neurotics problem. I love that he's calling us neurotics. It's the problem of life itself for all of us who have got to the point of real willingness to hew to right principles in all our affairs. Even then, as we hew away, peace and joy may still elude us. That's the place so many of us AA oldsters have come to. And it's a hell of a spot, literally. How shall our unconscious, from which so many of our fears, compulsions, and phony aspirations still stream, be brought into line with what we actually believe? Not believe, know, and want. How to convince our dumb, raging, and hidden Mr. Hyde becomes our main task. So we have to convince, we have to convince ourselves, our, our, our Mr. Hyde, that this is our main task, that we want to be brought into line with what we actually believe, know, and want. I've recently come to believe that this can be achieved. I believe so because I begin to see many benighted ones, folks like you and me, convincing to get results. Last autumn, several years back from this edition, depression, having no really rational cause at all, almost took me to the cleaners. 
I began to be scared that I was in for another chronic spell. Considering the grief I've had with depressions, it wasn't a bright prospect. I've kept, I kept asking myself, why can't the 12 steps work to release depression? By the hour, I stared at the St. Francis prayer. It's better to comfort than to be comforted. Here was the formula, all right, but why didn't it work? Suddenly, I realized what the matter was. My basic flaw had always been dependence, almost absolute dependence on people or circumstances to supply me with prestige, security, and the like. Failing to get these things according to my perfectionistic dreams and specifications, I had fought for them. And when defeat came, so did my depression. There wasn't a chance of making the outgoing love of St. Francis a workable and joyous way of life until these fatal and almost absolute dependencies were cut away. Because I had, over the years, undergone a little spiritual development, the absolute quality of these frightful dependencies had never before been so starkly revealed. I want to read that again because it's powerful. Because I had, over the years, undergone a little spiritual development, I mean, the humility in this I love, just a little bit of spiritual development he's gone through. The absolute quality of these frightful dependencies had never been so starkly revealed. Reinforced by what grace I could secure in prayer, I found I had to exert every ounce of will and action. Every, he had to exert every ounce of will and action to cut off these faulty emotional dependencies upon people. And this one might shock a few people that he wrote upon AA. Indeed, upon any set of circumstances whatsoever. The only, then only could I be free to love as Francis had. Emotional and instinctual satisfactions I saw were really the, ex- the extra dividend of having love, offering love, and expressing a love appropriate to each relation of life. Plainly, I could not avail myself of God's love until I was able to offer it back to him by loving others, as he would have me. And I couldn't possibly do that so long as I was victimized by false, by false dependencies. For my, for my dependency meant demand, a demand for the possession and control of people and the conditions surrounding me. I'm going to read that again. For my dependency meant demand, a demand for the possession and control of people and conditions surrounding me. While those words, absolute demand, may look like a gimmick, they were the ones that helped to trigger my release into my present degree of stability and quietness of mind. Qualities which I am now trying to consolidate by offering love to others regardless of the return to me. This seems to be the primary healing circuit an outgoing love of God's creation and his people by means of which we avail ourselves of his love for us. It is most clear that the current can't flow until our paralyzing dependencies are broken and broken at depth. Only then can we possibly have a glimmer 
of what adult love really is. Spiritual calculus, you say? Not a bit. Not a bit of it. Watch any AA of six months working with a new 12-step case. If the case says, to the devil with you, the 12-stepper only smiles and turns to another case. He doesn't feel frustrated or rejected. If his next case responds and in turn starts to give love and attention to other alcoholics, yet gives none back to him, the sponsor is happy about it anyway. He still doesn't feel rejected. Instead, he rejoices that his one-time prospect is sober and happy. And if his next following case turns out in later time to be his best friend, then the sponsor is most joyful. But he well knows that his happiness is a byproduct, the extra dividend of what giving without demand, the extra dividend of giving without any demand for return. The really stabilizing thing for him was having and offering love to that strange drunk on his doorstep. That was Francis at work, powerful and practical minus dependency, and minus demand. In the first six months of my own sobriety, I worked hard with many alcoholics. Not one, not a one responded. Yet this work kept me sober. It wasn't a question of those alcoholics giving me anything. My stability came out of trying to give, not out of demanding that I receive. Thus, I think it can work out Thus, I think it can work out with emotional sobriety. If we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root of it some unhealthy dependency and its consequent unhealthy demand. Let us, with God's help, continually surrender these hobbling demands. Then we can be set free to live in love. We then can be able to 12-step ourselves and others into emotional sobriety. Of course, I haven't offered you a really new idea, only a gimmick that has started to unhook several of my own hexes at theft. Nowadays, my brain no longer races compulsively in either elation, grandiosity, or depression. I have been given a quiet place in bright sunshine. Copyright the AA Grapevine in January 1958. You can all look that up. You can Google it. Um, to me, it's 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 precious. It's it's a precious piece of literature and our legacy, especially since it's it's as if you know we're talking. Well, we are having a conversation with Bill after the fact, after many years of working the program in his own life and many ups and downs of his own. Um, and and seeing what what his final analysis is and what what it really comes down to, and I love I love the focus on the emotional dependencies that we have, and we learn this process through looking at the tenth step. We learn this process to see like what instincts are being threatened at depth. He kept on saying that these hexes at depth. Because it's, we could, I mean, I know for myself, once having gone through the fourth and fifth step and doing six, seven, and eight with my sponsor, and really examining my 
unhealthy emotional dependencies on people and things, society. I know that by examining those things, like I, it's there's a surface level, and it's it's a process. It's not it's not like I'm I'm going to see that people pleasing, for example, which is really um, vying for a place in society, prestige, that instinct, that instinct really motivated a lot of my behavior and caused a lot of my suffering, my resentment. I was able to see that. And on a really deep level, just before I came in, there are two big, big, major dependencies that I dropped, emotional dependencies along the line of people-pleasing. One happened just prior to coming into OA um, in 2014. I am a people-pleaser extraordinaire. And even even to the point I, I had a messiah complex, which, you know, they say in psychology, you know, I don't, I don't know the exact... Um, definition of it, but basically the way I understand it is, I really had this deep sense that it was my job to to save other people. And in doing that, I would be saved. You know, I would I would secure a place in society for myself. I would have a living. I would have friends. I would have a community surrounding me for support. So I, by profession, am a behavior analyst. I work with children with autism. And if anyone knows autism, it is one of the most, I mean, our symbol is a puzzle for a reason. It's the most misunderstood disorder. I think one of the most misunderstood disorders that's out there. And um, it, it has been over the years mistreated, misdiagnosed, Recently, and when I say recently, I mean since the 1970s and beyond, we've come to understand that children with autism, for whatever reason, we don't know the where and the why of it. We just know that this works. We use a process called applied behavior analysis. So that's what I am. I'm a behavior analyst. It's a fancy-schmancy word for just saying that we analyze a child's behavior, we get down to the causes and conditions and the motivations for their behavior, and we work on that. We try to replace their motivation with healthier motivations and all the applications that we use in order to to train them in that way, to have a, a healthier way of living that is more conducive to all of the communities that they're in, whether it's school, family, home. So. So for me, coming into this field, I, you know, everybody, uh, first of all, you get so many congratulations before you even hit the gate, the street bun. You haven't helped one kid and you're already getting adulation. And for me, for me back then, with, with my need to please and, oh, my, my grandiosity that I was going to save the world, it, for me, it was like that I identify with Bill so much with his need to conquer Wall Street, I was going to conquer autism. And and in doing so, I was going to secure myself in society and secure a living and and be taken care of, 
you know, that I was going to get, get that, that benefit from it. And what resulted, not surprisingly, was a year, I guess a year into working 60 hours a week and putting everything, having be, being completely out of balance and putting all my clients' needs and their families' needs out of my own family's needs, ahead of my own health, I was completely lopsided in my my emotions. My life was lopsided. It didn't represent anything that I wanted it to represent. I looked around at my life thinking, you know, I want to secure a place in my family, my community, um, and, and have peace of mind and happiness. That's why I'm doing all of these things, and I'm nothing but depleted and bankrupt emotionally, spiritually, and physically. I wrote a letter to God when I was at that place, that jumping off place back in 2014 in February, and I said, God, okay, so here I am, 24, well, at the time, 22 years in recovery. I thought I was in recovery from alcoholism, and I was. The compulsion was removed. Um, I was 95 pounds and severely anorexic, but didn't see that. I, I didn't see that at all. And I said, God, I have everything I've ever wanted. I have a thriving business. I have a family and children. I have money. I'm thinner because as a chubby kid, I thought being thin was the be-all, end-all. You know, if I look like Marsha Brady, then everything would be okay. And I was thinner than all of my friends and most people that I knew. And I was suicidal. I was depressed and in despair beyond measure. It was probably the worst bottom that I had ever, ever hit. Because what happened was when I got sober, physically sober from alcohol, I began on a quest to supply all my unhealthy dependency demands on the world for prestige, for money, for secure secure place in society, all of my, most of, I don't want to say all because I don't want to negate that I had some inkling about the St. Francis prayer and giving without expecting to receive. I did have some inkling of it. But to its depth, to its depth, I didn't. I still believed that that was important in life. Oh, sure. You know, I remember, and I hear a lot of people in in the program say this. Yeah, it's all well and good to have a spiritual life, but I I have to make a living and keep a roof over my house, a roof over my head. You know, so... So in, in other words, for me, like when I said things like that, it was it was code for meaning, you know, um, I'm going to bring spiritual principles into my addiction and into helping other people with their addiction, but into all my affairs, my workplace, my home life, my community life, no, no. I, I still need to secure these things by making demands on people. 
And how I made demands on people was by completely giving them all of me and everything of me and then saying, pay up. Now, come on, time for the payout. It has to come back to me. So when the parents were still complaining that their children weren't fixed and they didn't see the improvements and when um, my coworkers and my employees were grappling that they were underpaid and overworked um, when I gave them more than I, I really could, at times paid them before I paid myself, all of these things I did to make them happy, to make them pleased, was an impossibility. It was never going to happen. I was never going to feel emotionally sober if I lived in this continual unsatisfied state of continual unsatisfied demands. And all of our AA literature talks about that. Living in a state of unsatisfied demands. What a, a terrible, terrible place to live. And so started my journey into OA, and it was truly a, a story for another time, and a really, uh, for me, miraculous, God-given, graced, graced event that brought me into Vision for You. And I started with um, Sally A., with lifeboat and it was truly a beautiful process and I could give anybody information on on that process um afterwards they could, when you get my number. I um wanted to read something else from the courage to change that I just thought and it's today, May first in the courage to change which is AA approved literature. It's a bit from Al and I. At a recent Al-Anon meeting, we were asked to fill in the blanks in this statement. If only blank would happen, I would be happy. Many of us were tempted to answer that. We would be happy if our loved ones got sober or handled sobriety differently. But other if-onlys also kept us feeling depressed. If only my boss my family, my job, my government, my finances would change in the way that I want, I would be happy. It became clear that many of us have put our happiness on hold for things beyond our control. We could, we could see this as our emotional dependencies and our demands. So that's my little side note. So we applied the first step and admitted that we were powerless over these people, places, and things. These if-onlys made our, life our lives unmanageable. But a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Many of us decided to surrender our if-onlys to a higher power. When we did, we stopped acting like victims, waiting for things to change. We chose to take a more active role in seeking happiness in the here and the now. There are many areas of life that I cannot change. What I can change is my attitude. Today I can accept my life as it is. I can be grateful and happy here and now with what I have. Life holds so much, so much to be so happy about always. 
most people ask for happiness on conditions. Happiness can be felt only if you don't set conditions. I don't I don't really think that there's a truer a truer statement than that as it impacts emotional sobriety. And um you know, I, I just wanted to give gave you so much information. I just wanted to give you some practical some practical tools. Once we get thrown off our emotional balance and we want to recover our emotional sobriety, how do we do that? It's a process. It's it's definitely a process. And I just wanted to I have lots of notes. Okay, so the emotional sobriety inventory that that I'm going to tell you about is to me just an expanded version of the tenth step. So we t- in the first column we talk about and and I can send this to anybody who who wants me to uh, afterwards. Upsetting, we write about the upsetting events, great or small. And I think it's it's almost more important to look at the small ones, you know, the little pebbles in our shoes. And then we write our reaction, how we responded to the situation. So, for example, um, what was on my 10-step my last night? Let me take a look at it. There's some big and small things. Oh, one little thing. Yeah, there was one little thing. I registered my daughter for an art class with her friends on Saturday mornings. Actually, my ex-husband did, and he paid... He paid for the friend and my daughter to do the class because the parents don't have the means. And we've been in the habit with this little girl of really, um, she's one of the few friends that my daughter has that she just gets along like beautifully with. So it serves us to pay for this girl and bring her on trips with us and family vacations. And, you know, it completely serves us. Um, So, when Saturday morning rolled around and it, and her mother texted me, is Megan going to art class this morning? I got so ticked off because I'm like, oh, the nerve of her, you know, because we pick, we pick her, I pick her up every Saturday morning, every other Saturday morning to go because that's what I do. I, I want my daughter to be friends with this girl. It's self-serving. And my daughter wants to go to the class with this girl, and I, that's what I do. But I expect, in exchange, for this woman to be grateful and not to put any demands on me whatsoever or expectations. How dare she expect me to come pick her daughter up? She just assumes that I'm going to pick her daughter up. So how did I react? I reacted in character assassinating this woman in my brain. And, I mean, I didn't say anything back to her. I answered. I learned how to behave to a certain degree. But as it says in that article, we need to analyze this thinking, these demands at depth. So I need to look at this and say, okay, so I'm not behaving like I used to and saying to her, you have some nerve, you know, I can only take your daughter when I can take her, and it's your responsibility to take her when you can't, you know. I mean, that might, might be something I might have done in the past. And, you know, I pat myself on the back that I don't do that anymore. Oh, terrific. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But I'm still irked, right? So 
So if I want emotional sobriety, I have to look at this character defect at depth. And I have to say to myself, oh, wow, how am I responding to the situation? I'm character assassinating this woman in my head still, even though I'm not doing it outwardly. And now in the next column, we look at the unenforceable rule, demand, or claim. I love this. Unenforceable rule. It means that it's impossible. And if we live by these unenforceable rules, I will be in constant agitation. So my unenforceable rule in this situation is, yin, you know, you, the rule is when I do for you, you are grateful, and then you just go about your business without expectation. If I don't take your daughter, you just go about your business and you do it. You don't have any expectation that I'm going to take her. So, so we teach people how to treat us, right? It's an unenforceable rule that people conform to, to my rules of behavior, when, especially when I'm teaching them to behave otherwise. That, that mother knows that I'm there to pick her daughter up. She has a reasonable expectation, I, I guess, you know, if I, if I were to say. It's, it's not a mystery why she thinks that. And to be perfectly honest, she might have just been checking if I was picking her up or not. Simple as that. And, uh, and when I said, and actually, now in hindsight as I'm saying it, the silliness of it, I, I texted her back, no, she's with her father this weekend. And, and lo and behold, a, a really sweet reply came back, oh, great, thanks. So now she knows. Would have been nice if I would have told her ahead of time, maybe. You know, so maybe that's my part in it. So unhealthy dependency. What is my unhealthy dependency here? My unhealthy dependency is that people appreciate me. They appreciate what I do for them. That I, I need that validation. I need that, that a girl, that thank you, Chrissy, that you're terrific. And that's my un- unhealthy dependency. I'll never be emotionally dependent, emotionally centered. I mean, if, if I live on that basis. So what do I need to do to stay centered? In this situation, in order to stay stay centered, I need to reduce that demand, reduce that expectation. I need to know that I'm going to take take that child to that class, and I know that my daughter is going to be happy, and that's what I'm getting out of it. I'm centered. I'm not expecting to get anything above and beyond that. I'm not expecting her mother to think I'm terrific. Her mother might care less that I do that stuff. That's to stay centered. I have to detach from all of that. And it's easier to detach from all of that when I look at it with the help of another recovered alcoholic or with this, with these inventories at night when I do them all on my own myself. It restores me back. To emotional balance. Okay. So hmm, these are the steps. Emotional sobriety. It's called the fourth front the fourth frontier. That's what the, the name of the article I read to you all was. Emotional sobriety, the fourth frontier. Uh, I have been taught and I had to make a decision to play nice in the sandbox. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. 
And with the help of therapists, sponsors, recovered friends, sponsees, spiritual guides, and other supportive people, it takes a village to stay recovered just like it does to to raise a child and to keep in balance on the road, growing up and changing and getting getting back into balance once I'm thrown off. Working steps 10, 11, and 12 get me back to center when I get off balance. It's all that I gained to buoy me up. I guess it all gave me hope. <laughs> one suggestion, one call, one honest look at my behavior at a time. And unlike rocks, this hope keeps me afloat, as they say. I'm open to help. I trust God, I pray, I ask for guidance, I call my recovered network, I help others, and I have a spiritual practice. It's a process. I just want to look over one more thing before I wrap up. Okay. Okay, so in closing, I just want to say that it's been an absolute honor and a privilege to to do service here, and I wanted to just add that I can't think I'm worth taking care of myself until people tell me that I'm worth taking care of myself. That is my next my next emotional dependency, I have a really, really hard time taking care of myself until I get the validation that I'm worth taking care of. And this is my daily struggle. This is what's been uncovered more recently in my spot check inventories. So this is the the thing that I'll be working on next because there's always something to work on. This is a continual process. As they say, we continue this work for a lifetime. So I admit my my worthiness. And what what do I need to stay centered here? It will be to forgive my parents for maybe, not directly, but indirectly teaching me that I wasn't worthy of taking care of myself, that that was selfish. I was taught that somewhere along the lines. I have to forgive them for teaching me that. That was an error. And now I could reteach myself to know that I am worthy of taking care of. And I could let go of that resentment and I could be free. And that's what this is all about, emotional freedom. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Chrissy, for your beautiful presentation this morning, including your personal insights and experience and specific examples. Thank you very, very much. Chrissy M.'s contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. And we will now transition to an opportunity for questions and answers. If you have a question for Chrissy M., you'll want to press star 1 on your phone keypad and identify yourself, please. Hi, this is Heike from Baltimore. Heike, hold on one second. Who else would like to get in this group? 
Anyone else with questions? Star one to unmute. Okay, well, Heike, you're the uh, icebreaker this morning. Go ahead. Okay, well, thank you very much, Chrissy, for this um, really um, delightful um, process. Um, I kind of got a little um, little bit of static by column four, so I was wondering, was that what is the unhealthy dependency? Okay, let's see. Was it, now we need to know, was it static static all along, or did you just get that part? I just got it. All right, all right. So it was unhealthy dependency. So you're looking at the upsetting events, your reaction, how you responded to it, whether it's reaction only in your head, that's important to look at. The unenforceable rule, demand or claim, and then the fourth column is the unhealthy dependency. Okay. Yep, I've got quite a few of those, so I need to go look at them a little bit more now. Thank you very, very much. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you, And if you could mute yourself again, please, Heike, I I believe there's some static. Go ahead, Chrissy. Uh, Leah, I just wanted to give my number in case people have to go, because that that happens to me sometimes um, when I'm listening. It's 551-404-3460. And as of tomorrow, and I I won't be um, Chrissy G on the list yet, I have to notify whoever is responsible of or I have to update the list myself, I should say, on the website. I'm going back to my maiden name, so I'll be Chrissy G tomorrow. Um, for anyone who's looking for me in the future once I change it. All right. Thank you. Note taken. <laughs> Who else has a question for Chrissy this morning? Leah S. Leah S. Anyone else? Renata. Elizabeth S., I believe I heard you. Renata. Anyone else? I'm sure if it's on your mind, it's on the mind of others. That's generally the way it goes. Ginny L. I just wanted to ask her to repeat her phone number. Okay, we can do that. Anyone else with questions? Elena. Elena. Okay, Chrissy, why don't you go ahead and repeat your phone number at this point, and then we'll have Leah S. pose her question. Sure, we'll do. It's 551-404-3460, and that's Eastern Standard Time. And Leah S., you're up. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Chrissy, um, uh, would you mind uh, elaborating on validating what your uh, emotional uh, insecurity was when when this other woman asked you, um, gave you that phone call and asked you if you're picking up um, her daughter or whatever? Yes, my so so. What was the unhealthy dependency in that in that moment? What was what was my my unhealthy dependency? Is that the question, Leah? Yes, yes. Okay, yeah. In that moment, I was when she when she texted me, um, 
is Megan going to art class? In that moment, my all of all of the things that I've done to her, with her, for her, prior to that day, and countless activities I've brought her daughter to and paid for it out of my pocket. Since they're in kindergarten, they're in fourth grade now. The, all of that, all of that came back because when I, when I was doing all those things, I relied on her to appreciate me, to make me, to validate myself, to make me feel like a good citizen, like a good parent, like a good mother, like a, I want, I need that, I need that. I can do all those things, I can do all of those things without that need. I could have done every single thing I've ever done for that beautiful little girl without that unhealthy need. I could end. I could do them without that healthy need and be free. Because no matter, regardless of what her mother says or does, it's not going to throw me off balance because I'm not attached to what she thinks about me or if she appreciates it. I hope that answers the question. Thank you, Leah S. Elizabeth S. Good morning, um, everyone. This is Elizabeth S., Recovered Compulsive Eater, and uh, thank you, Chrissy G., for your explanation. And I just wanted you to um, amplify how you did your Step 10, and especially um, is, uh, I have the question about the unenforceable rule. Is that like when, when you say uh, people should do this or they should have done this? Is that what it is? Oh, yeah. So if you it's could outline the four parts or whatever um, of Step 10 and then address that question. Thanks. Sure. No problem. So we look at the upsetting event, what, what pissed me off, basically, and how, how I reacted to it. Um, and then the unforeseeable rule is the demand that we claim. I, I make a demand. I do, I do what I do in the world, and I expect something in return, right? So that's, that's my rule. If I do for you, I, I mean, we even know these. They're, they're like little canned phrases. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Um, you know, there are many, many more of these unenforceable rules because, yeah, that's a, a rule. If I scratch your back, you, you better scratch mine. But you know what? You might be cutting these before it's my turn. I've done that before with my cousin Tracy. I'll tickle your back, you tickle mine, and I'm, I'm deep, deep asleep before it's her turn, right? It's no. People may not scratch my back if I scratch theirs. That's just not the truth of the matter. So if I'm going to have that unhealthy dependency that I need that my peace of mind is contingent on people keeping these rules, I'm done for, you know. So what do I need? So, so that's the fourth column, the unhealthy dependence. What is the dependency that I'm, I'm uh, stuck on? And, and the, the last column is what do I need to stay centered, to get back into center here? I need to laugh at myself usually and say, Chrissy, 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 there you go again. And I do it with love. Oops, there it is again. That's what my sponsor says. You know, I'm able to say it like I, I would with, with a toddler who, who falls taking their first couple of steps. You know, it's, I wouldn't yell at a toddler for that, nor would, 
would I, well, I have in the past, but it, it's fruitless to yell at myself if, if I fall in this way, you know, and, and I see it again that my emotional, my unhealthy dependencies are rearing their ugly head again. You know, I could just look at it and, and get back into center and say, okay, um, here's another opportunity. I see that I've built up this expectation, this rule that yin should be very grateful and very, you know, um, obliged to, to give me thanks and praise. And I could I could laugh at it. And I could say that's not, you know, why I'm doing these things. And it could get me back into center that way. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Yes. Renata G. Thank you, Leah, for your service. Uh, good morning, Chrissy. This is Renata G., Recovered Compulsive Reader, New York. Thank you so much for your qualification. I missed the first 10 minutes, but uh, I really enjoyed uh, all that you had to share. And you talked about, you know, what the big book teaches us, right, that recovery is a process and we need to continue to grow. And so I would be interested uh, if you could please talk a little bit about your step 11, uh, how that has evolved throughout the years and uh, what are your practices. Um, You know, it sounds like you really keep it clean with the step 10s. And so, you know, in what ways, like seeking that um, direction from higher power has changed for you and evolved and how does it continue to change? Thank you. Thank you. That's a beautiful question. Thank you so much, Renata. what I what I think is that, you know, in in my humble opinion, that all of these tools that I've been given, that's been passed down to me, this whole legacy, I believe is inspired by a higher power, and I believe when I pick up these tools, I I'm I'm in communication with the higher power. So when I'm doing a ten step, and and God is is I. I let God speak through other people. I let God speak through my writing. Um, I'm open. I'm listening. When I'm doing a 10 step, I'm pouring myself out. I'm emptying myself out to have direction, guidance, and insight. Insights that I couldn't have on my own. It says that in, in the, um, in the um, promises, right? These are things I couldn't think of on my own before. This isn't... This isn't an intellectual practice, all of this. Although, you know, we're using intellectual disciplines, we're using writing, we're using reading. To me, it's all inspired by God. But to get more specific about how my spiritual life has has really um, blossomed since my OA recovery, I've gone back to practicing the religion of my childhood. It was a Every, I, I really do believe that, you know, it, it, well, it's individual to anyone what's going to work for them. For me, being in, in a community of people who are living by spiritual principles, and, and, I, and the 12-step community is, is one in, in and of itself, but to be with the community that is doing it exactly or more or less the way I am through ritual and tradition, it's been such a comfort. It's allowed me, the structure has allowed me a spiritual freedom 
that I can't begin to describe. So for me, that, that's been the case. So I attend, and some people might be really surprised to know this, and maybe, maybe you'll completely negate everything that I have to say if you have any religious prejudice, but I go to, I go to Mass every day and receive communion. And I meditate while I'm there. That's my prayer practice. That's my meditation practice. Um, the ritual, the ritual of receiving communion for me is very healing. I feel like it's my portion of God's grace for the day to live from my higher self and to really resist my lower nature. Um, so I hope that answers the question. Thank you so much. Thanks, Renata. Ginny L. Your turn. Thanks. This is Ginny L. Thank you, Chrissy, and thank you, Leah. Um, I just wanted to ask her to repeat her phone number, and that was the only question I had. But thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, Ginny. Elena. Hello? Yes, Elena. Hi, uh, Chrissy. Thank you so much for this beautiful share. Um, I have a question for you. I, I realized over over the years that my expectations are should be almost none for when I do something for somebody, and I understand that now. But sometimes I find myself overwhelmed with emotions, whether it's good emotions, happy emotions, sad emotions, and run and do step 11, just breathe and meditate. But I wonder what you have to say about uh, how to handle just being hypersensitive to emotions. Thank you. Mm, that's, an, that's an excellent question, and I think it's something that, especially in early um, recovery, we deal with because we're, we're getting these feelings. We don't even know where they're coming from because we're so used to numbing out. And, you know, it's really um, it's a skill. It's, it's a skill to be able to... Um, feel emotions, process them, and act sanely and not react to them. So for me, I I wrote down, which I didn't get to, just some, and if you just bear with me for a second, as I just see papers that I have around me. Okay. This is what I wrote, like, these are these are just Chrissy's uh, no frills uh, process. Okay, so so I make a decision that I'm going to play fair in the sandbox. I mean, I, that's I start off with that intention every day in the morning, right? That I'm I'm not setting out to get my own way. That's that's a given, right? I want to do God's will. Uh, he is he is our um, our director, our teacher. You know, I'm playing in the sandbox with. It is God's children. I'm one of God's children. I'm going to stop, you know, grabbing all the the shovels and pails for myself. So that's that's one. That's my intention. I set that intention in the morning. So I stop playing emotional games. I start. I stop putting all my emotional energy into getting what I want from other people. You know. So if I build up all that emotional energy around something, I'm going to have a letdown, and there is going to be emotional buildup. So you really got to kind of nip it in the bud before it starts. You have to see what your intentions are before you're doing something. It it really takes a lot of conscious 
living. That's why they, you know, all of the talk about living in the moment and making moment-to-moment decisions to be free is so prevalent in recovery right now because that, it really is, it's not a once-and-for-all thing. It's a moment-by-moment decision. And the other thing is restraint of tongue and pen. Restraint of tongue and pen is another um, tool that we learn about the 12 and 12. And I pause, I ponder, and I pray. And I love this one. I underreact to situations. Because as I was told in, in the program, I could always go back and overreact later on, which I love. I love that. Um, I, I act. I don't react. And, and that, you know, I mean, fear is, fear is courage that said its prayers, they say. And I really do believe grief is, um, wait, sadness is grief. Oh, yeah, sadness is grief that found acceptance. So those are two emotions that I feel often, fear and grief. You know, that depression, that grief. But if I could pray and I could get out of the the feeling of the fear and get into courage, you know, get into acting and not reacting in fear and pulling the covers over my head, I have much more better chance of processing those emotions appropriately and in in a in you know more expediently. And and that's the same thing with the grief with the sadness. I, I once I move towards acceptance, like after doing some writing on a situation that's in, that that's grieving me, I can come into some acceptance of it. It's a process. I hope that helps. Thank you. Thank you, Elena. Anyone else have questions this morning for Chrissy? Star one to unmute. Sarah W. Sarah W. Anyone else? Jillian C. Jillian C. Anyone else? Nancy G. Nancy G. Anyone else like an opportunity to ask a question this morning? This will be the final invitation, I suppose. Judy M. Judy M. Yes. Okay. Vivian F. Vivian S. All right. Thank you, everybody. Sarah W., go ahead. Thank you for your service, Leah, today, as always. And good morning, Christy. Thank you for your beautiful compilation of uh, emotional sobriety, which is so important. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, or to have you talk a little bit about balance. Um, as um, And I've read that article. It is I, I knew about it probably 20 years ago, and it's an awesome article. Um, but the thing I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, you talked a little bit about um, the, your struggles with balance. So as we know, when we say no, uh, whether it be to somebody that has asked us to sponsor or somebody in our family that wants us to do something because maybe it's above and beyond what we can emotionally do uh, without sapping our own energy reserves, there is a response to that. So I wanted to know how you're dealing with that. 
and how you deal with that. Maybe give some um, uh, examples of that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. I think it's something that a lot of us um, deal struggle with. I, um, you know, when the unenforceable rule is that everybody should be pleased with me. You know, everybody should be pleased with me at all times, regardless of what I do think, say. You know, and that's that is an impossibility. If my emotional sobriety is contingent on that, I will I will very often be off balance. So my son, I'll give you an example. So my son um, had the expectation that I would let him use my car whenever he wanted to use it. He's 19 years old. Um, I don't know if somebody's on YouTube. Um, yes, let's let's pause for a moment. Uh, if you're unmuted, please mute yourself at this time so we can have a quiet recording. Thank you so much. Go ahead, Chrissy. All right, so it's a very practical problem a lot of us have dealt with with older children. And so he had that expectation. He had that expectation. He has, he has his own unhealthy emotional dependencies, his own unhealthy expectations, right? So now I can't be a puppet on a string to his emotional dependencies, just like I can't be a puppet on a string to my own. You know, and I really need to do what they say in the program. Take it from where it's come, where it's coming from. Nineteen years old, very appropriate that the world revolves around him, right? Of course, he would think that. Of course, he would be upset with me. My my emotional balance can't be based on the validation that I get from other people. It just absolutely cannot. So how do we get used to feeling that feeling of people being upset with us? I have to tell you, practice makes perfect. You know, to the point where when I piss him off, because I told him, I'm, I'm so sorry, but we're not sharing the car, and, you know, you need to get a job and save for one. And he was not happy about that. He went to go live, live with his father. Now, I, now I, I have to be honest, like, that... That was okay with me because I have gotten to the point with a lot of practice that when I, I know that I'm in emotional balance when that's happening. There are people around me that are reacting to me taking care of myself, especially ones that are used to me not taking care of myself. I know that I'm changing. And it could actually be seen as something that's a comfort rather than something that is a disturbance. And that's the only way I could describe it. And you need to have other supportive people who are doing this too. You can't call someone and say, oh, why didn't you let him use the car? He's such a good boy. You know, if I, if I called someone and they said that, I'm done. I need to have someone who said, good for you. That's right. It's your car. So I hope that I hope that helps, Sarah. Help me. <laughs> Thank you. <Sarah. laughs> All right, Jillian C. Your Hi, turn. great. Can, Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes. Great. 
Um, thank you so much for the reading. This is actually only my second OA meeting uh, online, and it was so great to hear the breadth that you spoke about emotional sobriety with. Um, and my question is about, um, I started in uh, one other program, and now I am now with OA in three programs, or, or kind of investigating at least three total programs. And I have this feeling of, of being um, just like lots of awareness of ways in which my life is not working anymore, but not feeling a lot of answers or recovery. And I think, I guess I just wondered, you had mentioned other programs as well, and I wondered about balancing it, how emotional sobriety works practically in terms of of programs, like you know, being in multiple ones at the same time or how you, I don't know, how you, how that works. (laughs) Love that question. I love that question. Thank you. And please keep coming back. Keep, keep showing up. Um, It's, for me, this is a place of answers. So I, um, I have to say, you know, with, with the juggling the different programs, which I've done and different therapies and, and things like that, like, I I was helped by this this last part and I I highlighted it but I didn't speak on it that in the in the article that I read mm-hmm. it says let me just see now cuz it says it says even we can't base all of our emotional stability even on AA which would mean even on 12 step programs in general I would say you know, it's not like the more meetings and more programs I join, the more emotional sobriety I'm going to achieve necessarily. There's definitely a point where things get off balanced in that direction as well. And and as I'm looking through, I can't find it, but please go back and, and, and read the article when you get a chance because I can't find it. I don't want to waste the time looking for it. But it says that. It says that we can't we can't put... We can't put all of our emotional dependency on AA and 12-step, this 12-step groups as a whole. And, and I've, come, I've come to see that that's true. I've come to see that that's very true. And it could be misconstrued. Me saying that could be mistaken by, um, you know, almost like sacrilege. You know, this is the 12 steps of the things that is the, the thing, the, the programs, all of it has brought me into recovery but if if for example um <laughs> my emotional balance depends on how many people call me afterwards and tell me i did a great job um today or or the opposite tell me oh my goodness you sounded just like a nervous nilly then if, if any of that feedback and this is my program this is my program program you know if if i am in a hospital for 10 days like I was with my daughter in September and didn't was without a scale the first day, is, is my emotional balance going to be completely demolished because I have to go and eye my food or, you know, uh, down at the cafeteria? I mean, for the first time, you know, in a year that I was sober, I had to do that. And my, my sponsor said, Chrissy, that's what she always says when she has something important to tell me, Chrissy. God is in that too. So my my higher power, which I believe resides in me, 
is that the be all and end all dependency is upon is upon my ha- my higher power within me. Everything else is a distant second. With that I, I pass. Thank you, Jillian, and welcome to you, Nancy G. Hi, good morning. Um, this is Nancy G. in Virginia, and um, thank you, Chrissy, for your presentation. I, um, I'm currently on step four, and I'm going to give away step five today, and I'm so happy about it. Um, my question to you is, did you ever feel, as you were going through the steps, and I, I don't know if you ever had any relapses or not, but that maybe um, I think one of my biggest fears right now is that I won't recover that somehow or other, I, I hear you and I hear everybody on the line, and, and I just get so um, nervous and and it almost makes me want to cry, you know, um, because I feel like what if what if I don't recover? And sometimes I, I just, um, it's just difficult for me sometimes to um, think about that path. I understand, and I, and I can reassure you, and I say this with love, you are, um, I would assume I don't know you, that you're just as they say in the program, a garden variety addict, a garden variety compulsive overeater, a garden variety drunk. This this disorder that we have, we share in common and we share the same solution. So, you know, really it's like they say, you know, it's the opposite side of grandiosity, thinking that we're so bad that we can't get recovered. You know, so just try to keep it in perspective that, you're just like me. Just make a decision to believe that, that I'm no different than you. You know, join the human race, give yourself a break, just do what you're told, and you're going to get better. Thank Thanks. you, Chris. Thanks, Nancy G. Judy M. Yes. Um, I was, uh, for, well, I had a couple questions. The name of the article you was talking about, where you got these references on how to do this inventory, or, or did you come up with this yourself? But my biggest problem is learning to say no and and mean it. In other words, I leave. My husband says I leave room for doubt. That's why <laughs> people can come in and and sway you back again. Mm-hmm. It's like you give them a false hope. And that when I say no, I really get angry because there's some some people who uh, would uh, come back at you from another angle. Like, they're not accepting your no. You almost have to feel like you have to cuss them out. For a to, oh, boy, you're speaking my language. I come <laughs> from the same family. And uh, I'm thinking, why ain't you getting it? Well, you think about it, you know, and I'm, I just said no. I'm trying to say no without saying hell no. <laughs> I know, I know. So with that, that was my question. That is such a awesome question and something that I, I think everybody has to identify with. And for me, and it is one of the things that, that throw us off emotion. I know throws me off my emotional balance. You know, here I am. It's hard enough to know what I need. You know, it took me many years of the program to figure out what it is that I need. Now I'm communicating what I need. And how dare you not respect it? That's 
we're just going to have to all agree that that is a universal, unenforceable rule, that when we set a boundary, that everybody is going to respect it the first time, the second time, or, or if ever, if ever. I mean, someone might never, ever, my son might never, ever respect the fact that he doesn't get equal use of, of my car that I pay for. He might never, ever accept that. He might always be just a little bit agitated towards me. Um, all I have to say is, what is the alternative? The alternative is to live my life uh, totally trying to to make other people around me okay, and it's impossible. So when I when I have to restate my no in a loving way, and I do it a loving way maybe the second time, and by the third time, I want to say the hell no way. You know, all I can say is that it, for me, it's really important to, like, all that emotional energy around that, that I can write about it. You know, you can write an FU letter and never give it to someone. Um, and then you can just keep saying, and I love, I love um, this one person who talks about spiritual principles. She says, no, and I love you. And and it's still no, and I love you. I love I love that. I mean, it's probably going to piss somebody off to say it that way, but you could even say it in your head. You could even say it in your head, no. And you could think, but I love you, but the answer is no. <laughs> That's all I have. Thank you, Judy M. And our final question this morning comes from Vivian S. Hello, um, Chrissy. I want to thank you so much. And I was very happy to hear a couple minutes ago that you don't need to hear that. But um, I would. And um, this um, talk just answers so many issues for me that have been just a puzzle for me for my whole life. I remember just, you know, in college having all these right ideas of lovely things I could do for people and really not understanding why they didn't then turn around and do them for other people. And it was an unenforceable rule. And, um, well, I think you've just presented this in a great way and it's very useful and I'm going to read that article and I don't really have a question. It's really a big thank you. And, um, I pass. Thank you, Vivian. I guess all minds are cleared. Thank you so much, Chrissy M., for your presentation this morning. Mm, thank you. And uh, once again, uh, that article, Emotional Sobriety, The Next Frontier. Selected Stories from the AA Grapevine, in case you want to look that up. Thanks again, Chrissy. I'm going to close the meeting from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. 
see to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.